Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow for the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Over the last two years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government and the Partnership for Public Service have collaborated on researching the rise of artificial intelligence use in government and its implications. This collaboration has resulted in the publication of several reports. Most recently, More Than Meets AI, Part 2, on building trust and managing risk. This is a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a second in a series exploring how AI can transform government. Artificial intelligence has great potential to improve how the federal government works. AI can increase operational efficiency and effectiveness, free employees of repetitive tasks, uncover new data insights, and enhance service delivery to customers. While they take advantage of these benefits, Federal agencies must also manage real and perceived risks associated with AI to build trust in these technologies. Many Americans have questions about the effects AI technologies may have on aspects of their lives. According to an October 2018 survey of more than 2,500 Americans, 59% of respondents are very concerned or somewhat concerned with job loss and displacement worries ranking highest. They also conveyed concerns about data privacy, security, hacking, and the safety of AI systems. It is important to identify and address AI issues that include bias, security, transparency, and job impact, and offer insights to government executives on how best to handle these issues. Today, I will bring you those insights and multiple perspectives from a host of government executives and thought leaders, including Suzette Kent, U.S. Federal Chief Information Officer, Ed Simcox, Chief Technology Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Andrea Bright, Assistant Commissioner of the Office of Resources Management for Enterprise Services at the U.S. Department of Customs and Border Protection, Dorothy Aronson, the Chief Information Officer at the National Science Foundation, and Dan Chenock, Executive Director at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Much of the discussion around AI focuses on what may happen, but Suzette Kent, the federal CIO, kicks off our conversation with a view of what's happening right now, a kind of point-in-time glimpse. The concept of artificial intelligence has been a primary focus of this administration, executive orders. Um, We talk about budget, budgeting priorities, the Select Committee on AI, a national AI R&D strategy, lots of things. But many of those were outward facing. That was about our industry and about the industry in our country and about how we compete in the world in this space. This is an exciting discussion because this is what we do with it internally and how we use those same capabilities to better serve citizens 
and inside the agencies um, what it means. For Suzette Kent, the federal CIO, when it comes to AI use in agencies, it isn't exactly slow going. We're moving incredibly faster at a much more lightning pace. And even in that first discussion to today, you're going to hear real examples, real examples of what's being done across many agencies. And the recommendations um, that were in there, we're actually doing a lot of those already. So there are success stories to share. More on those success stories later. But more importantly, Suzette Kent wants to drill down on the workforce implications and the ethical use of AI in the federal government. I want to drill a little bit deeper on the workforce implications and then where we're going on responsible and ethical use of AI. Um, every single agency, in my role I get to work with every single agency, and what is exciting is there is not a single agency that's not doing something. Where they're starting is a little bit different, and I'm going to talk about that, and what they're doing is different. But there are real impacts and real success stories and we have to actually scale some of the infrastructure and the skills to be able to keep that journey going. Um, some of the places that we're starting are the easy things. And the journey now is to the much more difficult things. So there's been much progress and there's a lot to talk about today, um, but we need to refine our, continue to refine our thinking, not only on the processes that we target, um, but how we collaborate in not just using the automation capabilities for repetitive tasks and components of tasks, but really changing the entire business processes end to end and our service models. So when we, um, it, when we start on this journey, it is also informing another very important part of the work that all agencies are doing and as part of our federal data strategy is that not only do we need skills, um, but we need to make some major foundational investments in data. Um, and you see those kind of going side by side. So these starting points, these success stories, they're informing the needed skills, whether that's technical skills in some of the actual um, automation technologies themselves, data skills, operational skills, control environment, and how we explain to citizens as we use these capabilities more broadly, what's in the data and what we're doing. Those are muscles that we haven't quite exercised in the same way. I'm going to talk about transparency and explainability a little bit more. Suzette Kent, Federal Chief Information Officer, explains what we are seeing now with AI in government. So a couple of things that we're seeing now. So AI and related types of automation. So whether we're talking RPA, um, natural language processing, analytics, and I want to compare this to the thing, right now it's not driving loss of jobs. It's driving more valuable work. And it's actually showing us where we need to make more investments in skills. In almost every agency, what you will hear them say is, yes, we are starting with the manual repetitive tasks. We know that. But those same individuals are now doing more value-added work. That aligns with shifting low value to high value work, but it also means the things that we're asking our employees to do are more complex. And those need different types of measurements. They need different types of skills in many cases. I would also put forth, and I, I'll challenge you to ask the folks who are going to speak later, in many cases, those employees are much happier because the work they're doing is a lot more interesting. 
Um, so it, it aligns with the hypothesis that was in the report out and the suggested point. But what I, um, as we were preparing for this, I was sharing with some of the team, we're, we're also seeing something a little different happen. And I want to put this out as a challenge for everyone. Going in for those manual tasks, that's happening ac almost across the board. And we're seeing success stories. And those things are very easy to monitor and measure from a control environment. The other place we're seeing is the leapfrog into the big complex questions, places that we can use data and we can use analytical capabilities, whether it's artificial intelligence or machine learning, to help us identify patterns, draw conclusions, and aggregate things in really big data sets. And I'm going to call this work, I'm making an analogy here for purpose, kind of at the top line. Work that has not been done before. Work that does not have an existing infrastructure. Um, and in many cases, exciting. What, where we're making a little bit slower progress is somewhat in the middle. And in the middle, is where we have to cross many silos. It's easy to automate a manual task. But when you significantly change a business process, you have to look at the human resource. You have to look at how we engage with customers. You have to look at how we collect data and what the regulatory environment you know, looks like for how we're collecting it and what we're using or how we're using it. We have to retrain a broader swath of employees. The, the work in the middle that really changes the business process and the service delivery is the tougher work. That's also the place where being able to be transparent and explainable is more important. And we have to build the mechanisms for the right type of data inspection, the right type of oversight, and how we share what we're doing with the citizens that we're serving, and we share it in a way that makes sense with them. How is AI changing the way the U.S. federal government does business? Once again, the U.S. Federal Chief Information Officer, Suzette Kent. So I'm going to tell you a couple of things that we're doing to go at that, and I'm going to share some examples. Um, as we talked about last time, and part of my discussion is that we are built developing policy to serve as guideposts for how federal agencies use AI, and that includes controls and expected examination responsibilities, both of data and what's in the algorithms so that we're starting with safety and we're starting with careful thought. But the challenge that we're still trying to solve for and as part of our collective journey is how do we achieve that transparency and explainability? As the use cases move from the manual tasks to that middle and the higher end where we are closer to delivery of services to citizens and decisions about things that we do that have more human impact, we have to have a mechanism for explaining and being transparent that is different, very different than what we have today. So example, right? Take it down to what are we doing at the agencies? Um, and you may hear some of these stories. If we use AI to identify potential errors or fraud in monetary transactions, that's pretty explainable, right? We know how that was supposed to go. We have a um, RPA community of interest that's being led by the CFO community uh, that has almost 400 individuals self-selected. They joined to help target those processes. That's That control environment's pretty easy. But 
When we have to explain the construct of a complex decision with many different data sets, that changes the paradigm. Um, I'm gonna, I know Ed and I were talking about this and we have a bunch of folks from HHS and I'll use a tiny example of one of the pilots. Um, we were doing a simulation on looking at data in the opioids crisis and what we were trying to figure out is when you look at all the factors that might influence that, how do you, how do you have maximum impact? Where, where would you put the resources? So when you have to look at the interaction of prescription drug levels and law enforcement, availability of mental health treatment, income levels, what might be going on in a particular region, and draw conclusions about what's most impactful, that needs a different kind of transparency and explainability. There's a much higher level of responsibility around understanding the data and the relationship and how those outcomes are driven. Those are the places where our next steps and our focus has to be. Let's get the, let's get the easy stuff, and agencies are doing a phenomenal job at that. But how do we move on to the next piece? How do U.S. federal agencies move to the next level AI? And in doing so, how do they address issues of developing accurate and bias-free data? Once again, here's Suzette Kent, the federal CIO, sharing her insights on these issues. The responsibilities for accuracy and bias-free data and transparency of construction of the analysis requires a much more significant approach. The other area that's um, front and center, and so, so that is an, an area where you will continue to see more work, and we need a lot of public-private engagement. Um, I'm even watching some of the discussions that are going on in cities and the reaction of certain citizens to what the city is doing and what they share and how they interpret that. And that's a place where understanding the mission and the audience that you're talking with is very, very important. Um, how we might explain something to a group of scientists and what's explainable in that population is very different from how we might explain why someone was chosen to receive a food supplement benefit. So that's, that is a set of skills. When we talk about skills building, again, beyond the technical, beyond the technical, beyond the data disciplines, the next step in how we interact with the citizens that we're serving. Taking data seriously, making it accurate and bias-free are front and center. But what about security? Here's the federal CIO, Suzette Kent. The other area where there's a lot more work to do is in the security area. And I'm, this ranges from just primary research for what's going on in the artificial intelligence, whether that is at the device level um, at, or it is at software level or it's in the data collection devices. You know, we talk about, uh, you, you talk about Internet of Things, but there, there is an incredibly complex environment now from which we are collecting data. And the security question is in the data collection, the analysis, the use, and the explainability. It, it runs through the entire process. And those are things that we need to continue to explain um, or we need to continue to explore, whether it's at the device level, the data gathering, um, the way in which data is managed. And we have to up those as we share data more broadly. That's an objective of the federal data strategy, more broad sharing. That's a, a, definitely an objective of the agencies. Um, some of the most exciting work, 
And the best collaboration that I'm seeing going on between agencies is when they are sharing data to solve a complex problem. Um, but they might also tell you some some stories that aren't so fun around how long it takes to share that data. But in sharing, we also have to look at the security, um, increase that level of security and privacy as we go on that journey. And those are questions that we are asking and working through right now at the agencies because this is moving so quickly. Um, I would pose one other thing. I, I think the, the outcomes and the conclusions that and suggestions that were in the last report are you know very much spot on, and we are seeing actions on almost every one of them. Suzette Kent, the U.S. federal CIO, is proud of all the work being done at federal agencies. But as the work continues and progress is made, she counsels federal executives to be thoughtful. But one other reason that we have to be very thoughtful around how we enact the actions around transparency, privacy, and security and what we decide inside the federal government is important for model examination and the engagement model with citizens is that these may actually set the standards for some sectors and some areas. There's many areas where this is new, but it's moving so quickly. And as we take steps to introduce controls and examination processes, um, those may be adopted and used very quickly. So it's very incumbent on us to be thoughtful about those and have robust dialogues that represent, you know, industry, academia, and the citizens that we're serving in those areas to ensure that we get it right. Federal CIO Suzette Kent underscores that AI use in government is one of the most transformative areas the administration is working on now. And here's why. It is one of the most transformative areas that we are working on right now. We're doing a lot across the technology community, but this is something that has the opportunity to fundamentally change how we deliver services to citizens to drive efficiency. So when we go back to the mission service and stewardship, um, this is a home run, but we have to get it right. We have to have that level of attention. I think the partnership, IBM, the federal leaders here today who stay engaged in this. Um, and this is a place where learning fast and collaborating is very, very important. And you're going to hear from some fantastic leaders who are doing that. Um, I have the pleasure of working with them every day. But it's important that we're taking the learnings from these agencies and bringing them back to the center and using that to make our collective approach better and to move at a pace that does represent global leadership. Suzette Kent, U.S. Federal Chief Information Officer, set the context around what's happening now with AI in government. Before we hear from government leaders pursuing AI in government, Dan Chenock, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, explains what kind of effort went into the most recent report, More Than Meets AI. We've had through these roundtables, government leaders, academic experts, colleagues in industry and the nonprofit community come together and identify the challenges that you are seeing in the two reports. Um, and today's dialogue will really elucidate what those challenges look like in practice at three agencies by three uh, tremendous leaders. What are U.S. federal agencies doing to leverage artificial intelligence to meet their missions? I'll introduce you to three government executives who are leading the charge when this special edition 
of the Business of Government Hour returns. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, More Than Meets AI, how AI is transforming the way government does business. First up is Ed Simcox. He explains his role at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and how he's using AI. Um, So I am the chief technology officer, and for a while, uh, for I think nine months, I also served as the acting chief information officer uh, at HHS. Um, And that was a a fantastic opportunity for me to understand kind of the operations, the regulatory environment in which we have to operate um, uh, federal IT. And um, also um, uh, had the wonderful opportunity to go um, testify regarding oversight of, of IT uh, in front of Congress. And, and uh, it was a great opportunity. I, I, my background is I, I went to law school. I'm a recovering attorney. <laughs> I haven't found the 12-step program for that yet. But uh, it was kind of like studying for the bar, going in front of Congress. And um, understanding all of the, the nuance and the intricacies associated with best practices around, uh, you know, uh, good IT. I took a lot of that as we were designing some of the, the internal education uh, things that we do around IT. So we have an internal program called um, Data Science Collab that we run. Um, and the whole idea there is to make people uh, more fluent in the basic language of data and data science and, and AI. P- people that probably work with data um, casually in, in their jobs, but are very interested. They have an appetite to begin to use data in a more meaningful way and, in a day-to-day basis and, and, and understand what that means. Um, so we run this program, and there are um, the, the first cohort we had, which was last year, we, we, had, uh, we put out a, just an informal call uh, to some listservs internally and, and, and through email, and we had uh, 200 people sign up for it. And we, I think we had uh, 70 seats available. The second time uh, that we did it, did the same kind of outreach, we had 800 people at H- from across all of our agencies. So step back, HHS, largest civilian agency, 80,000 full-time employees, 100,000 contractors at any given time. In the organization, you have Food and Drug Administration, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, you have Medicare and Medicaid, the National Institutes of Health, et cetera. And the people in these classes are from all across HHS. So I report to the secretary, I sit in the immediate office of the secretary, and that gives us kind of a, an umbrella, a, you know, a wide lens view across what's going on. And this type of training, I think, is really, really important. Um, and the whole idea is we're taking a very, um, like a crawl, walk, run approach to AI and to data science to get people more fluent uh, in data and understanding what AI is. And part of that um, training is teaching people about three things, privacy, security, and the fiduciary responsibility that we have to taxpayers or patients um, regarding their personal data that's protected by many sets of uh, legislation and regulation, the most important and most visible of which is HIPAA. Um, and there are serious privacy concerns around where we do not identify, we're not allowed to identify people um, and surface data about, pe- uh, personal data about people while we use their their identities. So 
Um, built into this education is a lot ar- around those three things, uh, but also um, just generally how, how can people use AI, how, simply how can people use data uh, to meet their missions and, and their business goals inside. So that's just an example of, of some of the stuff that, that my office is involved with. The next government executive to explain her leadership role and how she leverages AI is the CIO for the National Science Foundation. I'm Dorothy Aronson. I'm the Chief Information Officer at the National Science Foundation, and I've been recently, and also the Chief Privacy Officer. Unlike Ed, um, uh, NSF is this tiny organization, about 1,200 people, one location, so I have a very easy job, but it's a, it's like a Petri dish. Um, I'm also Chief Data Officer now, so I'm learning all about data. Um, if anyone has any other titles they'd like to throw my way, go right ahead. So uh, our adventure with artificial intelligence started maybe a year and a half or two years ago. NSF is working on both of those uh, directions that Suzette pointed out. We have some people doing bots in the financial area, and that's one kind of level of problem. But uh, where I started was with a big problem. And I want to emphasize that we started with a problem that was in an unknown territory, one of those. And what we did was... um, And here's the thing that I'm not sure quite how to say this, but um, I don't believe that IT people should be leading this charge. Um, And the reason for that is because artificial intelligence requires the intelligence of the business. And so if the people doing the work are not the ones leading the effort, we can't go very far. And if we engage them as the leaders, then it's easy. Then adoption is easy. Training is easy. All of these other things, if they, if others own it from the beginning and we are the facilitators. So that's my experience. And what we did at NSF was we were very fortunate. There was a huge problem that looked like it could be solved with data. It was a time-consuming task that was being done by the researchers. Um, and we got some researchers together who agreed that it was a big problem. They did not agree on how to solve the problem. They agreed it was a big problem, and they agreed that data could help. And together, this team of program officers, uh, which is the name of the scientists at, at NSF, said, yes, we want to solve this problem, and we tried a lot of different ways, and we called those things micro-projects. We tried all different kinds of tiny experiments, like does the data exist that we could use to solve this problem? How can we find it? So each tiny success that brought us closer to understanding how to solve the problem led us to an artificial intelligence solution that was very easy to implement technology-wise. The technology is there. Businesses got all kinds of tools out there. They're free on the internet often. Uh, The data, that once we identified it, it existed. We had to clean it up. We had to make it machine understandable um, with respect to the ethics. There was definitely a question of ethics and bias in the data because when you use existing data, it is bias. It is by nature. It wasn't developed to be non-bias. This is a new thing. So what we did to accommodate the bias was we explained to them, if you use this solution, you are going to encounter and have to, as an intelligent being, counter the bias that this program is going to give you. Over time, it becomes more accurate. But initially, you have to be very aware of what those biases are. And then we had to conquer the people problem, which is this is a big problem. If we solve it, there will be staff impacted. There will be, of course, there'll be program officers who are delighted because they have to do less work or it's easier to do their job. But there's also people supporting them in this task, and those people will be affected. So the third prong, in addition to technology and data, the third prong we attacked right from the beginning was the people. Not just the people who are doing the technology and the people who are doing the actual program officer type work, 
But the people, what do we do? How do we replace the work that's being, how do we, what do we want to do with the people? What do we want to do with the people who will be impacted? That was the absolute hardest part of the problem, and we failed to solve it. So although we solved the rest, uh, the main learning from that problem was we have to be more aggressive about fixing the people problems. And so what, what was born from that learning was the notion of this competition we're running called the um, Career Compass Challenge. And what that says is we're, we, it's an it's a attempt, challenge.gov, you're too late to enter. The, the submissions are due on Friday. But, but the notion is, uh, can we, is it possible to use artificial intelligence to build an app or something like that that would, given a tiny bit of, of information about you, maybe, maybe bits of your resume, maybe your um, personality uh, profile, and given information about what we believe might be emerging jobs five years from now, not things where, that are posted in USA Jobs now. If we knew something about the future and could predict the future, and if we knew something about you, could we offer you the opportunity to begin to see your future path? And Matt, and could this app feed up training opportunities and detail opportunities and, and such for you? And so just having that um, vision and conversation has been really liberating for us in that um, often we talk about the future as if it's incredibly vague and we don't know where we're really going, but it's something like this. But the app gave people a, I don't know, like like the sword in the stone. It gave a substantial thing that people could look at and say, I think if that's the vision, how do I build to that vision? And we've gotten a tremendous response and it's been a very positive experience. That was Dorothy Aronson, the Chief Information Officer at the National Science Foundation on how NSF is using AI. The next government executive who shares her thoughts on how her agency is using AI is Andrea Bright, Assistant Commissioner of the Office of Human Resources Management for Enterprise Services at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. I probably look at this from a slightly different perspective as an HR professional. I do see a few of my HR colleagues out there, so yay, HR folks. <laughs> um, I was thinking as you were talking about when I first started hearing about artificial intelligence, and for me, this goes back... I would say 10 or 15 years in the HR realm when we were talking about hiring and one of the first applications that I started hearing about was um, one of the one of the things that we're always looking for when we're hiring people is individuals who are able to write, right? That's always one of the challenges. We need people who can write well in the federal government. And we spend a lot of time, or we used to, um, rating people's essays. And so we were looking at how we could use um, what at the time was called latent semantic analysis to um, feed in essays that had already been rated into an artificial intelligence tool so that we could train the tool to then rate these essays later because we just spend a lot of time in the HR offices rating people's essays and having, frankly, subject matter experts do that type of work. So it's been a really long evolution. Um, it's something that we've been talking about in HR and <coughs> something that we probably haven't um, grabbed hold of as, as solidly as um, a lot of other areas. 
I am relatively new to CBP. I've been at CBP for about two months. So <laughs> I'm still in um, a little bit of a transition phase. But I've learned a little bit about how we are using artificial intelligence at CBP. And I would say um, a couple of things. One is from a workforce perspective, we really intend to use artificial intelligence to free our employees up to do the work that we actually hired and trained them to do. We aren't intending to reduce our workforce and, and we really don't think that we will have surplus employees as a result. What we think we will have is, for example, border patrol agents who are able to focus on their law enforcement activities instead of monitoring videos where we're we have cameras monitor the border, and um, right now we have individual Border Patrol agents who are monitoring those cameras. And so our goal is to establish artificial intelligence tools that will set flags that will help to signal to those Border Patrol agents if it's a car, if it's a person, or if it's an animal, if it's a cow. And so <laughs> instead of having people do that, which is what, we're, what we have been doing, we are moving towards automating some of that activity that allows the Border Patrol agents to do the work that they want to do. So getting back to um, having employees who are more satisfied, that's what they want to do. They want to be doing their law enforcement mission. And so we believe that artificial intelligence will help us get there. Another initiative that we have is we're working with the DHS. Um, science and Technology Directorate, um, the U.S. Postal Service, and some other federal agencies to improve our what we call non-intrusive detection systems that are monitoring international mail that's coming into the United States to help us to identify illicit drugs that are being trafficked into the United States via the mail system. And so if we can improve the, um, the way that we monitor that, that will help us all to come back, coming back to the opioid crisis, some of that um, some of that challenge for the United States. So there are a lot of opportunities for the way that we use it. Um, the other thing I would note is um, obviously one of the challenges is in communication to our workforce. And one of the things that we've done at CBP is we recently issued our 2020 to 25 strat strategic um, initiatives. And we've identified three critical goals for the organization. Um, and I'm actually, this predates me, but I am thrilled to see what they did. Um, so our, we have three goals. The first is mission, the second is team, and the third is future. And within each of those, we have specific strategic initiatives. So what we've done is place our workforce up front as one of the three most important things for CBP. So we're sending a message that we care about our workforce and we want to ensure that that they remain a priority for the organization. And embedded within the mission and the future components of our strategies, we have a lot of technology. Um, one of the key strategies under the future is data analytics. We've all been hearing about it, but for us, we have tons of data. And to the extent that we can better mine that data, it enables us to do our mission better. So um, we're really using our um, strategic initiatives and our st strategic plan as a key communication tool for our workforce to let them know what our priorities are. That was Andrea Bright, Assistant Commissioner at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection on how CBP is using AI to meet its missions. How is AI a mission enabler? We'll find out when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. 
Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, More Than Meets AI, how artificial intelligence is transforming the way government does business. Artificial intelligence isn't just another technology. AI is a mission enabler. Ed Simcox, Chief Technology Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, outlines the steps they take in making this happen. People seem to gravitate towards shiny objects. Even, you know, the folks that are mission-based and leaders in, in, inside of the mission space, they hear what the great things that we're doing around um, uh, AI across federal government, and they say, I think we might need some of that, right? So what we do is we, we try and rationalize the process by um, bringing folks into our office and, and saying, what problems are you trying to solve? You know, always have to go back to that uh, that question. The other thing that we do is when, when folks say, hey, I think we may need AI, or we say, yeah, you're right, you, you know, this, this, could, this calls for us maybe some robotic process automation or some AI, um, we then uh, sit down with them and we pair people up. We take t- technicians, if you will, who are really good at um, 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 development, you know, technical development, and we, we pair them with people in the operations of the mission part of the organization. So the idea of dev, dev ops, right, a developer with an operator, if you will, in the business, that is super important. You have to start that process from the very beginning um, if you're going to be successful in executing on an AI project. Um, so we spend a lot of time talking about that. We don't call it DevOps because, again, I think that's a little cliche, and it means different things to different people. Um, but um, it's always it's always important to the the first few minutes of the first meeting that we have with folks is around what problems are we trying to solve here, <laughs> and we nail that to the wall first and foremost. And then you got to go back to that on a regular basis and make sure you you, you maintain focus on that. And if you do. You're going to be. You're going to have a greater rate of success in implementing technology down the road. The other thing I'll tell you uh, that we're really focused on is people, process, and technology, in that order. And and Suzette hit, hit, hit on this a couple times in her remarks. You have to start with people. You have to go to the people and understand them where they sit and where they are. And what's important to them, and this goes with whether they they're, they're fearful about their jobs being eliminated uh, with AI, or if they are um, interested in using AI. We have to figure out how the, you know the, what is the the cor- cor- corporate culture, the government culture like in that part of the organization. What kind of tools and everything might um, be available that that are a good fit for that process, um, um, Suzette hit on that that middle layer, right? It's kind of the boring, hard layer of what we do. I mean, we all know about some quick hit projects that we've seen in our agencies, right? And then as Suzette said, we also know about the cool, sexy things that we're doing that are really advanced, you know, using supercomputing architecture and neural networks and um, uh, the national laboratories and things of that nature. Great, great work. But the meat exists in that middle layer and it, it involves process work and it involves policy work and it, it involves um, uh, the ethics work. And, and so um, you have to take things in a stepwise fashion. It, it's, there's not an, you can't push the easy button. Um, you, you, you have to be very um, calculated about this. And if you're formulaic and calculated about it, your outcomes are going to be a lot better. Dorothy Aronson, the Chief Information Officer at the National Science Foundation, recognizes that AI projects will be more successful if they are viewed as more than technology efforts. 
So one of the things that we do very differently, I think, at the National Science Foundation is that I don't perceive that the IT budget is the own, I don't own it. I'm responsible for the stewardship of that budget. But the governance and the decisions about where those dollars are spent is, is among the people. So we have a very broad uh, uh, and inclusive governance structure. And the people that participate in it, participate in it voluntarily. They participate in it because they care about the tools that they're using to do their jobs. They make very difficult decisions. Um, uh, we do generic planning and we do generic planning for two years out and specific planning in the year of execution. We don't talk about artificial intelligence. I don't, I feel like artificial intelligence is a word, is a couple of words that have different meaning to different people. It's scary to some people, it's sexy to other people. Um, that was air quotes. Um, it, you know, I think that uh, instead we talk about you, artificial intelligence isn't emerging in the federal government. It's there. It's on your phones. It's in your DevOps. It's in your security, uh, your, your security um, systems. So to talk about it as if it's not there is, also, is false. Uh, so I don't talk about it at all. I say what, again, this comes back to the very same thing, which is inclusion. We will be solving our problems with AI because it's out there, because that's the best tool for solving our problems. Andrea Bright, Assistant Commissioner of the Office of Human Resources Management for Enterprise Services at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, offers advice in what not to do when introducing AI because it's critically important to build trust with your workforce. One um, additional thought, and it's sort of a, I, I would say it is almost a backwards um, thing. Um, so we have a what not to do. Um, so when we were developing our um, system for um, what I call sensor flags, um, I'm not sure if that's the right ter technical term, but um, so that based on our cameras and so that we can identify sort of those individuals that we're trying to identify versus animals and other incorrect flags. We found that some of our um, employees who had been um, the ones monitoring, they'd been sitting monitoring the video over time, they were uncomfortable letting go of that. And part of the reason for that was because we hadn't involved them in the process. So it, it really is the same thing, but it was um, what and as a result, they had a temptation to um, default back to the manual processes. So they, rather than allowing the AI to do what we had built it to do, because we hadn't built trust with them, they were inclined to just back away from it and, and default back to doing the work themselves manually, which defeated the purpose. So really for us, it's, it's the same thing everyone else is saying. It's about bringing people into the process, the people who will be the business owners and the end users to build that trust and confidence in the systems that you're developing. Um, and I think there are a lot of techniques that you can use to do that. Andrea Bright, Assistant Commissioner at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, underscores the importance of reaching out to your workforce. You can reach out to your workforce and invite them to identify. I mean, the employees are the ones who know what they do. I mean, we, we all as leaders 
like to think we know what our employees do on a daily basis, but they really know what they're doing day to day. And to get their suggestions, here's a, you know, here's a process that could be automated, or here's a place where I spend a lot of my time, and I really don't think that it's value added time, and I would rather be doing the you know that. I'm a scientist, and rather than doing, you know, whatever it is I'm doing, I would like to be doing science work. And so reaching out to the workforce to get their ideas for how and and when we implement <coughs> things like this, I think are is a good, um, it's a good approach and it's a good retention, retention type of thing to get their buy-in. Getting employee buy-in is key, but so is having a workforce that has the right skills such as digital literacy. Here's Dorothy Aronson, the Chief Information Officer at the National Science Foundation. You know, I, I, I don't question whether or not they're giving me good directions. I just do it. So you can either, you can either trust the program completely and, and, and I guess the word is, uh, you know, relinquish control to the app, which is not really where we are and not what we want to do. And so I think that what we actually need to do is get people who understand uh, we need to work to improve people's understanding of uh, what AI does so that they can trust it generically and also what their data contains so that they can understand it specifically. And uh, we're, we're, what we're doing right now, we, we've done some, exp uh, if we sent out a call for people who might be interested in, in improving their data literacy. And uh, we established a sort of a, a, a test to see how uh, we were going to give uh, free training through a, a company called Udacity. Uh, the CIO Council funded this. They funded it for 10 people as an experiment. We sent out a call um, uh, for at the CIO Council to bring in people. And one of the first things we learned was that most people who want to be data scientists don't qualify. Uh, or data analysts. I mean, we don't have the skills that we need. So what we're doing next is we're going back and saying, okay, you guys all have an interest, which is the key. Uh, what, what do you or don't you know? Um, and so we're trying to figure out at the basic level, how can we take a person who maybe knows nothing about this and bring them quickly to the place they need to be in order to, to meet the demands for data literacy? I, um, I believe that a lot of people are afraid of things like programming. Uh, especially people who have been doing data entry their whole lives or watching a monitor, they feel maybe that they are not capable. And that's absolutely untrue. Uh, you know, it's possible we have to start with classes in Boolean logic. You know, if, if you know, teach people how to uh, trust a computer and what's going on. That's not the, the generation coming out of schools now. They don't need that. But we have a tremendous, powerful workforce, and we're not really using them to the best of their abilities because we haven't invested in this way. How can agencies build their capacity so they can be more successful when using AI? Ed Simcox, Chief Technology Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, offers his perspective. As many of you know, the Evidence-Based Policy-Making Act um, was... Um, just just activated and uh, we now have some OMB guidance around that as well and uh, that's a fantastic thing um, we we created in my office the the, the chief data officer role uh, well before um, um, the the legislation came out but we were anticipating that this was going to be something that was that was going to happen because we've seen it in industry for a long time and it's the right thing to do from a stewardship perspective 
Um, and, and so we have um, undertaken uh, a few different projects, if you will, around data. So we have uh, an internal um, data hub project, if you will, which actually started as, uh, it started under the last administration, the last, uh, uh, the CTOs under the last administration, starting with the first CTO at HHS, Todd Park, who, who um, was very uh, vocal and very correct in saying that we need to liberate data as much as allowed by law and regulation. Because why? Because it belongs to the taxpayers and it's needed from a transparency perspective, it's it's needed from a healthcare quality perspective and a cost perspective. Um, we need to get that information out to the uh, to the research community outside of HHS, and we needed to get it out to the citizenry so that they can begin to make informed decisions about their healthcare. And we've been on a long journey uh, in liberating uh, data across HHS. We probably have more data than any other uh, civilian agency or department. Um, but they're starting with that position of um, low risk, you know, and, and, and that's good. So um, one of the things that we're doing is helping people understand um, it, it, while still being good stewards and, and good owners of, of the actual databases and, and data sets, uh, understand um, the level at which they can share that data. And that's an ongoing process. It's a, it's a, it's a training uh, process for us or a learning process. Uh, that we that we help people go through. When we start, when I started um, at HHS over two years ago, uh, our mo, if you will, was to kind of charm and cajole people to give data sets uh, that could be then synthesized with other data sets that we could get insights. So the opioid crisis is a prime example of that. That only takes you so far. Now what we're doing and what a lot of other uh, large cabinet level departments are, are doing, um, uh, this is what Dana DC is doing at, at DOD for instance, um, is, is looking at it from a different angle. How can we enable, right? So I, we've, we've all talked about training and the importance of people being fluent in the language of data and data science and AI, um, very important. Uh, but, but how can we also enable and empower folks? So we're looking at a way that we can create an, an open industry standard data hub um, with a set of analytical tools available and a chargeback mechanism so people can bring their data to this platform and they can compute against that data in a, in a safe, secure and environment and an environment that they can control at the end of the day. That's super important. And if they want to give um, others access to that data or they want to allow it to be combined with other data sets that are outside of their control, we have a, a, a very controlled way to go about that. But there's a stepwise approach. You don't just say, hey, you know, put your data in here and, and then knock on the door the next day and say, let's open that data up. Right? They have to get uh, used to the idea that they still have control, and they do, uh, and that when, it's, when a request to share a data set uh, for a mission-based purpose um, arises, they're still in control. Um, and, and it's a much different motion, a much different posture that we take uh, with folks across HHS, and we've seen a really uh, good response to that, uh, that type of motion. Tapping into the vast amounts of U.S. federal government data making it useful and available, are all critically important. And Dorothy Aronson, the Chief Information Officer at the National Science Foundation, offers an innovative way to do just that. 
I've been in conversations also where people are talking about how do we break out open the federal data? How do we make it available to people? And one of the ideas that I heard that I thought was very interesting was the notion of creating a synthetic twin. So creating a replica of a data set, a database that people who are developing artificial intelligence can, can uh, use to test and validate and create um, uh, um, tools and then, and then without releasing PII or whatever. Leveraging artificial intelligence offers many benefits, but brings with it many risks. Risks that we may not be able to fathom at present. But what can federal agencies do to manage the risk of pursuing AI to improve how they do business? Did that make sense, Jim? Was that too rough? Okay. Do I need to do it again or you want me to jump? Then one more time, smoother? Leveraging artificial intelligence offers many ri mm -hmm -hmm. Leveraging artificial intelligence offers many benefits, but also includes many risks. Risks that we may not be able to fathom at present. But what can federal agencies do to manage the risk of pursuing AI to improve how they do the business of government? Dorothy Aronson, the Chief Information Officer at the National Science Foundation, offers her perspective on how best to manage risks. To me, the risk is if we are conservative in our approach, then the industry will continue to advance at a quicker and quicker pace and roll over us. So we're competing with two risks. One is the risk of using AI and making bad decisions. But the other risk is getting the government into a position where we can't keep up with providing services for the people. And so um, I, I don't know if that's the kind of answer you're looking for, but that is genuinely, I'm, I tend to be risk averse and assign the risk to the owner of the program. Dan Chanuk from the IBM Center for the Business of Government tells us how the CTO for the Government of Canada manages AI risks. One of the things we learned in the research, the CTO for the Government of Canada spoke with us and spoke about their model of an algorithmic impact assessment where they looked at risks at different levels and have specific actions that agencies will take based on the risk of applying AI to the particular application. So it's a, an interesting model to apply that. Andrea Bright, Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Human Resources Management for Enterprise Services at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, notes there's risk associated with every action, but there's also risks to inaction. There are risks associated with actions, and there are also risks associated with inactions. And so when we're considering the risk of implementing AI or any other technology or any other decision that we make, we also have to look at the risk of not doing it. And sometimes we only look at the risk of the change and not the risk of not changing. Few technological innovations offer the many potential benefits of artificial intelligence. AI tools are also expected to impact the federal government substantially, with implications for federal systems and structures. To capture the benefits of AI, federal agencies must be prepared to address related risks. The IBM Center for the Business of Government and the Partnership for Public Service have published three distinct reports on AI and government in the hope that these reports will spark conversations, continue the research and discussion, into how AI can change the way government does business. I invite you to download the series of reports, Using Artificial Intelligence to Transform Government, and More Than Meets AI, Part 1 and Part 2, at businessofgovernment.org. 
This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, More Than Meets AI, how artificial intelligence is transforming the way government does business. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation exploring the intersection of government, technology, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.